I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Natalie Hodges, is both a writer and a classical violinist. Born and raised in Denver and currently living in Boulder, Colorado, she has performed throughout Colorado and in New York, Boston, Paris, and the Italian Piedmont, as well as at the Aspen Music Festival and the Stowe Tango Music Festival. She graduated from Harvard University, where she studied English and music. Today's interview focuses on her recently published first book, Uncommon Measure, A Journey Through Music, Performance, and the Science of Time, a memoir that also explores the connection between music and time, lived experiences, flowed states, and their interruption, the price and rewards of devotion to art, and the coming to peace with the relinquishing, or at least transformation, of a lifelong professional ambition. So, Natalie, welcome to Delving In. Thank you so much for having me, Stuart. I'm very happy to be here. Well, first of all, I want to congratulate you on publishing your ritually thoughtful and sensitively written book, its positive reception, and the public recognition of a new additional career. Thank you very much. That was a, a surprise for me, and I'm, I'm grateful that, that, that all this has come of it. So, thank you. So let, let's start with the wonderful title of your book, Uncommon Measure, a phrase that's rich with connotations. How did you come up with it and what does it mean to you? Yeah, well, I, that's a great question. I knew that I, I wanted to have the word or some notion of common time in the title. So I think one of my original, the original iterations was common time or uncommon time, something like that, because Common time, which is the sort of musician's colloquial name for 4-4 time, it's the most common time signature in music. And by time signature, for listeners who may not know, that's the number of beats per measure. And the it also like denotes like what subdivision of a beat is, or it, it, what subdivision like is what type of note is getting the beat, essentially. So in 4-4 time, you say there's four beats to a measure and the quarter note gets the beat. So most, uh, the majority of music is written in this time signature. And so I wanted to gesture at that because throughout the writing of this book, I was thinking of music as this way of experiencing, of unifying our subjective experiences of time, right? So as we go through our lives, right, we all, you know, time, our perception of time is so affected by our own individual cognitive processes or different experiences. You know, if you at a particularly frightening or joyful moment in your life, time can really expand during a busy day. It just feels like there's not enough of it. So we're all living in these very discrete, separate experiences of time. But when we listen to a piece of music, like with someone else or even just on your own, it's this certain amount of time where you're experiencing time demarcated in a particular way. And that enables you to share to share it with the musicians, the performers, with the people you're listening with for as long as that piece of music lasts, right? We're all able to synchronize our, our sense of the, our, our sense of time to that same shared beat. And so I, one of the animating questions of the book is like, can, is it possible to ever step out of that individual experience of time and experience 
shared time, like truly share it with another person. So I wanted to have that notion of common time or common measure embedded in the title. The uncommon part and the measure part comes from the idea that music is not a traditional way of measuring time, but that perhaps it can be like a, a way of quantifying those individual and shared experiences that we can have. And the uncommon also points at the disjuncture and the disfluency that we often experience as well. So long explanation. Interesting. So l l let me share one of my reactions to the title after reading the book is that you as a aspiring, not just a violinist, but aspiring solo violinist had to have a feeling of measuring up. And that's an incredibly difficult thing to do. I don't know if all our listeners are aware of this, but I think, you know, becoming a violin soloist is akin to making it to the NBA or, you know, or the NFL. I mean, it's, it's a very stratospherically high ambition. Yes, it is. And it's, there are, that's, that's such a great observation and gives more meaning to the title for me as well. There is that notion of how, of it, it feels impossible in some ways to, to measure up because that standard was also always increasing all the time for what it means to be a violin soloist or a, a player at that level. And at the same time, there really is, I think in the classical music world, this sense that we ought to be able to quantify or measure how great a particular performer is. And we, the best sort of metrics and standards that we have for that are through technical proficiency. Oh, they don't play a single note out of tune. Their sense of rhythm is perfect. But so much more goes in to making music that isn't quantifiable in that way, too, that's not measurable. Yeah, which we might call musicality. That's really hard to pin down, but you can, when you hear it, you know it. Exactly. You feel it. You feel it. You feel it, and the listener feels it, too. Yeah. So in, in the preface of your book, you start with this sentence, if you want to change the past, all you have to do is to try to record what happened in it. And then you launch into experiments in quantum physics, which seem to prove that time can travel in both directions, that the, the future can change the past, at least with subatomic particles. I get the feeling, though, that you're referring in the writing to, of the book, your own, that you, your motivation was a desire to change your own past, you know, perhaps not the events themselves, because that's pretty much absurd, the meaning of them. And, and given that it, this is, must be a, a work in progress, this kind of project, did the book do that for you? Yeah, that's a great question. It was, it did, it did do that for me, but it wasn't actually a motivation behind the book to try to change the past and come to I don't know that I was necessarily even trying to to say, oh, you know, I can't have this career anymore. Like, what new career can I have as a writer? It was actually a huge fear of mine as I was writing the book that in doing so, that in in crafting it into narrative, that I would change what my that I, I felt at one point that I was maybe perhaps making excuses or like I, you know, maybe I, if I had just 
tried a little bit harder, worked a little bit harder, practiced more, you know, I would be on a stage somewhere not sitting here writing this about how I had failed to achieve that goal that I'd always had. So as I was writing it, there was in the back of my mind this consciousness that when you do craft a narrative like you, there are things that you link together. And even if it feels true to link them together, you are sort of in this process of moving out of the past. And that is going to necessarily change your understanding of, oh, why this thing happened, why I had to do this. Because in the context of the present, as the present music moves into the future, you're giving that meaning and justifying it to yourself. And so at, at first, I was afraid of that. And I knew that that was probably going to happen as I wrote the book. And that was part of why I wanted to reference these experiments in quantum physics that have shown that attempting to observe the behavior of some subatomic particles and record their behavior actually changes how they'll behave even before the observation has occurred. So that was something that I was aware of as I wrote. But as I kept going, it it did become this, I guess it did become this way of coming to peace with music because it was also this way of seeing how much it had inflected the story of my life and given my life a shape. And it was also this just this way of letting go of the structures that had held my life up for so long and that had given a sense of identity, something to hold on to. And it was a way of moving into a new narrative. And I, I did, I had to become more okay with that as the writing went on. And as we said in your bio, I mean, you were both a music major and an English major. So clearly you had a love of writing and literature before. So it was a very natural transition to make, I would think. And, and there are, are musicians who do both. I mean, Jeremy Denk, who's actually a native of Las Cruces, is a great example of that. And I also would just want to point out, that, I mean, that you were quite a high-level violinist at a pretty young age. I mean, in your senior high school recital, La Campanella, which is a really virtuosic piece. I mean, that's not your standard high school graduation piece. Yeah, no, thank you. It's It's funny because the the drive that I talk about in the book and that, you know, anybody who has pursued an art or a sport or I think any any craft or skill at a really high level that this this will be familiar to them. You have always this consciousness, like as, when as you try to get to that level and as you progress, like you do have to have a sense that you are good and that you, you know, a, like improving in your technique and attaining these skills and that you are at a high level. And somehow it's that feeling that becomes not enough and that I think generates the anxiety about, oh, like if I could get here, if I work harder, I could just get a little bit more, a little bit better. So I think you do get to a certain point, or at least I did with music, where the high levelness of it was what felt, what created the feelings of deficiency that were so crushing. Well, the higher you get, the the more you could see how, to the next level of higher. You know, it's the problem. You know, it's like you you can't you can't even see that at the bottom. And and it's and the technique involved is so demanding, it's so incredibly demanding. I mean, it's I think it's like Perlman said. You know, learning piano is in some ways easier in the sense that you can sound like you know like a musician from the beginning. I mean, you could you can make a nice note. But even making a single note on a violin, you know, at the beginning is, is, is hard to do. It's an incredibly demanding instrument. Yeah. 
So the, the whole first section of your book is about performance anxiety, and and I have to admit it was a little painful to to read. But I, I guess I was hoping that in the writing of that, that you maybe were able to release some of that some of that angst that you depict so thoroughly <laughs> in that chapter. Thank you. To tie together with time, you talk about the time distortion that happens with performance anxiety, also known as stage fright. Yes. And you, you give an inside view of the, the experience in all its vulnerability and also a musician's insight into the disruption of musical time. So would you flesh that out for us? Yeah, absolutely. So this was actually the, uh, this feeling, this sense of time stopping that I began to experience when I, like around the end of high school start of college when I when my performance anxiety became really debilitating that connection with temporality was the impetus for the research I did that became the book because I I really would feel that when I was nervous that time would stop and I couldn't get into the that sort of flow where you you feel like you know what's coming ahead and you're able to just sort of fall into that I just wasn't able to access it when I was nervous and so my sophomore year of college, actually, I was in a, a class on Darwinism and evolution just for a gen ed. And for the final project, we were allowed to research whatever we wanted. And so I thought, OK, I'll do the evolution of human musical ability. And I stumbled upon, stumbled upon a couple a couple papers that became really important for me. And the first was Anarud Patel's Action Stimulation for Auditory Prediction Hypothesis, which is this hypothesis, this idea that there is a really hyper streamlined connection between the auditory cortex of the brain of humans and the motor cortex. And it's this idea that when we hear, like say if you hear a, hear a beat, in a song, those signals right enter through the ear and are are processed in the auditory cortex, and the auditory cortex then starts firing signals to the motor cortex of the brain, which you know is what would enable you to start you know clapping or snapping your fingers in time. But th- what this hypothesis says is that then the motor cortex itself starts sending back its own signals to the auditory co- cortex that refine how our processing of that beat and how we hear it and make it more precise. And so it's this idea that being able to tap into the time of that beat physically, like with your body, refines how we perceive it. And so that our sense of temporality in music is something that comes from the body. It's not, it's not just received passively by the body. So that was the first paper. And then and there was another paper I read that mentioned or that talked about how like the ability to be able to sing to a beat was evolutionarily beneficial for you know early humans right who needed to be able to synchronize themselves with other people to be able to hunt and fight and gather in tandem and so i i was really fascinated by this idea of being able to tap into time as being really important for us as human beings and that that's where our ability to produce and appreciate music came from. And that also felt connected to my sense that when I was nervous, time for me would stop. And then there was another study that did find that when pianists were performing, it has a beautiful title and I I mentioned it in the book, it's Why I Tense Up When You Watch Me, the name of this study, done at a university in Japan. And they did find that 
the the motor cortex is affected by nerves and what like the pianists would apply like more keystroke force than they needed to and what the researchers called the temporal fluency of their performances is lost. So that's a long explanation, but it is this idea that our perhaps our very ability to perceive beats, right? That same cortex that's involved in beat perception or entrainment as it's called is affected by nerves. And so that anxiety, right? There is scientific evidence that it anxiety can cut to the heart of our ability to process time in music. And people often speed up as they get nervous, which of course, if you're playing something at all virtuosic, it's going to become impossible to play at a speeded up tempo. Yes, very much so. Do yourself no favors. <laughs> yeah, so then you're, you, so you're getting nervous, you're speeding up, you're, you're, you're unable to, to execute, and then you get even more self-conscious about, oh, now the audience is going to see me messing up, and then you get more nervous and they speed up some more. You know, it's, it's a vicious cycle. You know, I, and I think also this relates to social anxiety, that if a person becomes too self-conscious, then they can't really tune in to the other person very well. And if you can't tune into the other person very well, you're, the flow of the conversation is going to start to break down. And so I think something like that happens with musical performance too, that you're unable to pay full attention to the music itself, as well as the other performers. And then that, that breaks down the responsiveness. Absolutely. It's, it's very isolating. And you need that responsiveness to be able to you know, deal with all those tiny little things that happen in performance and to be able to stay in sync with other people. And I also think that that observation about the social anxiety brings up such a great point that I think sometimes, at least for me, right, the presence of other people could, or that I, you know, with whom I was playing would help alleviate some of that anxiety I felt because it gave me something else to focus on and to tap into and to hold on to. So it, it goes both ways as well. Well, I, I can very much relate to this. I'm, I'm not a professional musician. I'm, I'm only an amateur, but I've learned some classical guitar. And, and the only people I could play for without getting disabled by performance anxiety were my wife's aunt and uncle, who were un, not only unremittingly supportive, but they were also mostly deaf. <laughs> Ideal audiences is like the two characteristics a musician wants, right? Exactly, exactly. So I was wondering if you could read for us the passage that starts with Music Sculpts Time. Absolutely. Music sculpts time. Indeed, it is a structuring of time as a layered arrangement of audible temporal events. Rhythm is at the heart of that arrangement on every scale. The cycling and patterning of repeated sound or movement and the measured flow that that repetition creates. The most fundamental rhythm is the beat itself. The pulse that occurs at regular intervals and thus dictates the tempo keeps musical time. In music, a beat is no fixed thing. It can quicken into smaller intervals, a cellarando, and stretch out into longer ones, de cellarando, depending on the character of a given musical moment and the feeling or fancy of the performer. But it does remain periodic, predictable, inexorable. Even at the level of pitch, which is really the speed of a given sound wave's oscillation, we are really hearing the rhythmic demarcation of time, a tiny heart whirring at a beat of X cycles per second. So, you know, the, the word inexorable, I think, is a really well-chosen word. I mean, it's, it's a kind of relentlessness. If you're in tune, so to speak, <laughs> with the time, then you're, you're, you're good, you know. 
But then if you start to get off of it, you know, question for an amateur, you know, you sometimes just miss a note and without necessarily feeling the beat well enough. I mean, for instance, in a Bach fugue, which I've sung in, in choirs with, you know, just four overlapping voices and very hard to get one's bearing. You have to be really good at timekeeping and keeping time and counting time. Yes. <laughs> My, my guitar teacher said, you know, you have bel canto, and then you have cant canto. That's <laughs> a type of... Yeah, so you, you talk about the, the high-level demands of a professional musician, the, the virtuosic pyrotechnics. I'm not sure that you ever use that word in the book, but I think that's a, commonly, a common descriptor of just how difficult these things are. And then also the interpretive challenges and sometimes the stark exposure of less virtuosic music is really interesting. And the, 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 you have a whole chapter at the end of the book uh, on the Bach Chacon, which is the piece that every violinist wants to not only master the technique of, but especially the interpretation of it. It's so incredibly difficult to bring out a meaningful interpretation. It's not as virtuosic as a Paganini at all, but, but the, on the meaning level, it's much, much harder. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, for for me, the the performance anxiety and the sense of dread and then also the inexorability when I would feel like, ah, you know, I'm, I'm going toward this place that I know I'm going to mess up, which was the other manifestation of that, you know, just time ticking on until I get to this, this part that I'm afraid of. Yeah, a moment of doom. Yes, um, very much a moment of doom. Like you, you feel your own fate when you're dealing with that kind of anxiety in the moment. Yeah, that 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 I I would attach that sense of doom not not just to you know pieces like Paganini that are so terrifying and hit or miss in terms of the technique, but all, like I would attach that kind of that feeling to pieces that were really important to me personally as well, and I that I wanted so much to um, interpret in a coherent and meaningful way. And some of the times that where I, you know, would get nervous and then mess up and would feel the worst about it would be, you know, maybe there was some, you know, shift at the you know end of a really beautiful phrase where you would shift really high or something. And I would be able to, it's like not a hard shift to make, but there's something about it, something about wanting to execute it well because feeling like there was tremendous potential for beauty or meaning in that moment would burden it and I would miss it and I would be like I why am I even why am I missing something that's so easy and it was because of the personal significance and the interpretive potential that I felt that it had that I almost in in those moments felt incapable of you know executing on or that I felt like I was always going to lose it felt like there's so much at stake. Yeah. So let's have just one more excerpt about performance anxiety, the one starting if you can't get into that flow. Sure. If you can't get into that flow, if your nerves get the best of you and you're dragged onto the shore of self-consciousness, well, chances are you'll mess up that tricky run or play the last chord as an anticlimactic pizzicato and hurry off the stage with your head bowed. In performances like my botched Paganini, even when you've been dreading all the while that something will go awry, you're never prepared for it. The flow is staunched, the fabric rent. You feel punched in the gut, knocked out of the music's time and back into your own. 
And then afterward, you can feel the seconds and minutes passing. You trudge through, it's all linear. You just want it to be over. You just want to make it to the end. Why then does the ego get in the way of its own longing for expression? On one hand, it is inherently egotistical, presumptuous even, to get up on stage and demand that others listen to what you have to say. But at the same time, performing requires humility, a willingness to risk being humiliated or misunderstood, and to lay yourself bare so you can try to say what you mean and what you think the composer meant. That is what is at stake in performance, nothing more or less than the longing for self-expression to connect with others and be heard by them. Yeah, so in your book, you, you talk about chamber music as being easier. And I think the reason you gave, and I, I've heard this from my daughter, who's a violinist, that when you're playing in an in a ensemble, even more so when you're playing in an orchestra, that you're surrounded by other musicians and, and you're kind of pulled out of yourself. You're not solo on stage. And so it's easier to kind of be immersed in, in the experience of making music with other someone else. Whereas when you're the soloist, it's like all eyes are on you. And did you find that to be consistent? Because I know that you still do some music making, playing at weddings and so on. I assume a lot of that is an ensemble, right? Almost always, yeah. It, it almost always is. Yeah, and that's what I, in the, the place in my life that I have come to with, with music and the sort of space that it occupies now, it is as a, a means of connecting with other people and being in time with them. And I think for me now, that's true not just with the people that I'm playing with, but in the types of events that I'm playing at, which is like at a, at a wedding, like to, to help the time pass more joyfully, or if it's at a funeral, having music, or it makes it a little bit more bearable and just can, can be like a, a moment of respite in the service, or even playing in the background at a party. And so that's also its own way of being in time and in a way that's shared and more elemental than I perhaps ever felt than when I would get up on stage and perform in itself, that kind of performance or event, at least on the, you know, for the performer, you do feel like time in a sort of macro way stops because there are all these expectations and stakes attached with this particular moment. Like you've been preparing for it. Here it is. You get up on stage. Everyone's watching you, expecting you to deliver. So even I think those types of performances and different performance contexts have their own, involve different senses of time. And, and for some people, they really thrive on that. Like I, I remember one, another student in my, in my studio in high school who just loved getting up and performing for, as a soloist. And she said, yeah, I just get up, I turn off my brain and I do it. So it's, it's just a different, I think, relationship to that. And you wish, I'm sure, that she could have bottled that for you. I never asked, but I maybe should have. <laughs> it's so interesting. Just the feeling of, of, of performance anxiety, I, it's, it sounds a lot like dissociation to me. Mm. And it's a, tr a trauma dissociation where in the movies you see, you, you hear the heartbeat going and you know the, the background becomes all out of focus and all the attention of the person is on themselves and their own body. And the world disappears. That's a really astute observation. I, I think so. It's this terrifying combination of being disconnected from the rest of the world, but then you're actually 
you're actually forced to be really present. And I, I think that's something people talk about a lot, like, oh, pre- like pre- that presentness is what can allow you to be, like to get out of moments where you're stuck like that psychologically or due to performance anxiety. And I think that's very true, but I think in that kind of tra- traumatic moment or moment where you feel like everything is falling apart, there is, it has its own kind of presentness that is so corporeal. You're absolutely right. Like you, you're so hyper aware of your body. Like I, I felt like I could feel, you know, the sweat on every single fingertip. I was so aware of that too. So that's always been interesting to me. So to what extent were you able to overcome performance anxiety? And, and I'm wondering if now that you've, you know, given up your dream of a solo career, do you find that the performance anxiety has really subsided when you play? Yeah, I honestly, what really helped was a lot of the, just reading a lot of the science behind it that I, that I ended up going into for, for the book, because knowing that my experience was at least, you know, if not quantifiable, but backed up by research that different scientists have done in that realm of, of music production and cognitive science meant that it wasn't just something that was subjective and personal to me, but it's maybe something that other people experience too. It's a product of biology. And even if it can't be quantified, right, if it can be grounded in the concrete and scientific, then it can be shared and it can be explained. And, you know, maybe other people have experienced it too. So that was a really important step for me in overcoming it because that made it less isolating. And that also meant that, oh, if I can try to figure out some way to to quiet this aspect of my brain or I can focus more on just staying in in the beat or whatever it is, that that, that would help as I was performing. And then now I do when I do perform, like and I occasionally still do perform by myself, very rarely though, I I get nervous, but it's not debilitating and I actually kind of get excited by having the nerves because it's not as high stakes. So I kind of like not knowing what's going to happen. And the way I try to conceive of performance now is that however it comes out, right, maybe it's, it's not as, you know, it's not the, the best, it's not as, as good as the best way that I played it in practice or something different or funky or weird happened. The other side of that coin is that there are creative possibilities that maybe it's, I, you know, play this one phrase, like in a different way than I had thought to practice it. And so I am kind of invigorated by that and challenged by that, and I'm, I'm less afraid now. Well, that's good to hear. Thank you. <laughs> so it would seem that performance anxiety would not be a major factor in writing, since the, you're not, it's not a perf- in the present performance. It's something that can be sculpted you know, little by little, and you can refine it, and it's maybe more akin to, well, let's say, if your only musical performance was recording only recordings you, know, you could always redo it and redo it and redo it and you could even splice in of course that's one of the reasons why there is so much performance anxiety is because of the recording industry and people listening to perfection <laughs> but do, do you still experience a little bit of performance anxiety as a writer but maybe in a truncated form or a modified form you know actually not at all not at all that's wonderful yeah and that was a huge realization for me too as I was writing the book about performance anxiety I loved 
that it was a completely different relationship to creation and to time because you know in the practice room you can you play something a billion times and you can get it right but it doesn't matter because when you go on stage you have to do it again and you're either going to execute or you don't but when you're writing I loved that you know I could write something I'd be like oh okay that's good or like I like where this is going get up the next day open my word document and it was still there and I, I talk about this in the book too that performance anxiety, like that notion of recreation, having to make something again, again and again, was what was hard in music, especially if you feel like right, there is a particular standard, it has to be this way for it to even be worthwhile. And in writing, I guess it does involve recreate, because you're always sort of molding your ideas and going back and editing, but the staying power and the continuity of time that is available to you in writing was it I it, I it just didn't produce anxiety because of that so it's really almost like an antidote <laughs> you know writing is an antidote to musical performance yeah so let's 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 shift gears a little bit and talk about the next big section of your book was which is improvisation yeah which is a really fascinating topic when you consider it alongside performance anxiety because since it's not written down music you have so much more freedom and you have freedom to play or whatever you're going to play but in a way there's less freedom for performance anxiety because you have to pay such close attention to what's going on in terms of responding to the other musician and you know unless it's a solo improvisation but even a solo improvisation you have to pay attention to what you've played before and i mean it seems like you'd be absorbed in the moment much more thoroughly in improvisation. Yeah. And I, I should mention, right, that I, I wrote about improvisation in this book as someone who is not really able to do it in, at least in the very, in the, I think, truest meaning of that word, or the way you think people just get up on stage and kind of, you know, produce a whole piece. And so, but I, I came to it from this perspective of someone who had been so focused on memorizing and recreating all the time and just not understanding how it was possible to to create a piece that sounds like it can really just hold up in time like if you played the recording back of you know people of a really skilled improviser if you play that if you recorded it and then played it back you wouldn't necessarily know it was improvised because it's coherent structurally yeah, and thank you for introducing the reader, including me, to Gabriela Montero. Yes. <laughs> I mean, she's amazing. I mean, I looked her up on YouTube, and wow. <laughs> yeah. Just incredible. She's actually, I got to, she came to Boulder in the summer, and I and played with, she played Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto, and then did some improvisations at the Summer Festival here, and I, I got to meet her afterward, and she's just an incredible human being in every way. And she has someone from the audience just sing out a tune from the audience, and then she takes that tune <laughs> and turns it into a whole piece on the, on the spot. Yeah, and it's often a tune that uh, I, I think her, her best improvisations are, and I think these are actually tend to be the tunes that people offer anyway. They're often folk tunes or like the Star Wars theme, things that everybody knows. And so she brings the entire audience like into this shared moment of creation and of riffing on something that is familiar and dear to everybody, but she makes it entirely new. And you're 
like the the pastness and the oldness of that theme you're watching it get transformed and it's you there's like it's just so fun to listen to her there's all these familiar parts that you can pick out but you also don't know what she's going to play next so it's she's just incredible well and she had to kind of go against the norm to do that because i mean in jazz of course improvisation is the norm but in classical music it's not even though in you know mozart's day there was a cadenza you know, in the middle of concertos where the performer just made it up, you know, I mean, it made it up, but reflecting somehow the, some of the themes of the previous movement, but that, that's kind of gone by the wayside. Now when it's, there's a condenser, it's a written down condenser. Exactly. Yeah. That's a huge change in how, in the, the place that improvisation holds in classical music. That's, it's very tied to the evolution of the genre itself. When composers started notating scores, right, it allowed for like this dissemination, right, of, of music, right? So if you can read music, right, then you can, you know, play pieces by Beethoven and Mozart because, you know, people from the inception of, you know, classical music, right, it, so much of it was just about oral transmission and passing down Gregorian chants and people memorized it, but there, once once you have notation, it opens up possibilities for so much complexity that composers can then put in and it becomes just too much. Like you can't, like you need to be like reading the score and memorizing the score to be able to play these pieces. And you also need to be, you know, learning from masters who have gone before you just to be able to produce that music. It's so much more complex. This sense of tradition, this sense that there's a way that is set in stone, that's the right way to play these pieces. And then you have, in once recording technology comes along, that really contributes to this sense that one way is right, and we're not going to deviate from that. And there's less of a place for improvisation. Yeah, so higher and higher standards, but maybe at the cost of some of the joy, both of the performer and the, and the audience. Yeah, that's definitely something lost. Perhaps the joy, and at least the, perhaps the, at least the creativity, Activity, I think, or the the inclusivity as well. Like there's not, it's not as expansive. And I know Gabriela Montero, she she did encounter a ton of resistance in her career. Like her, she had a, a teacher who was really against her improvising, but she's, she's talked about that. And there are a lot of people who say like, this is impossible. Like she has to, you know, travel with these people who sing out melodies to her, right? that she has pre-planted them in the audience because it just, it's not, it's not possible. It shouldn't be done. So I want to just quote, I, I think I'll, I'll read this one because you're quoting somebody else anyway. <laughs> you're quoting T.S. Eliot. To me, that eternal act is nothing less than the creation of what T.S. Eliot called the still point of time's turning world, neither past nor future, neither ascent nor decline, neither from nor towards. To improvise, one must be wholly, almost ecstatically present and reaffirm that presentness in each moment. To improvise with other people, then, is to share that ecstasy with them. So that, that's an even stronger word than joy, I think, ecstasy. is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, I, I think it's a word that comes up, I think, a lot when people are talking about flow states or that different kind of presentness than the, the presentness of intense anxiety where you just can't get out of your own body, right? But it's that you feel this fluidity, you know, between... You and the universe, or certainly you and you know the other person. Yeah, I think it was it was important to me to use that word there. 
Yeah, and, and I think that's what the audience is looking for too, whether they're listening to a concert or watching a movie or reading a book, is the kind of total absorption where everything, everything else disappears. There's something very, very ecstatic about that state of mind. It reminds me a bit of hypnosis, which I've done in my own psychology work. That I, I, the way I describe it to people is that it's, the hypnotic state is, is a combining of the state of mind you have when you're just falling asleep, where the sensor is off and, you, and your imagery and fantasies can just flow, and yet the absorption that you feel when you're in a really good book or a really good movie and everything else disappears. And so and for most people who are, you know, who are able to get into that state, and most people are, it's a, it's a really pleasurable state. It's, it's a kind of blissful in a way and, and creative at the same time. Yeah, I think I think that is a really important word to use in conjunction with ecstasy is is creativity too. And I mean, I think it, there is this sense. I think like if you think about you know descriptions of ecstatic religious experiences or even experiences that people have on psychedelic drugs, like the descriptions, it is this sort of coming out of yourself. Like it's this like that self-awareness that flow of you know as you were saying that flow of internal consciousness but there's also this connection outward I think and at least in the context of improvisation that I was I had been researching and writing about I think that was very true that it was the, this not even like a way of leaving the self behind but of the self becoming part of something bigger. So do you see improv improvisation your own improvisation in your own future? Maybe through learning to play jazz, for instance. Oh, I wish. See, I always, I, I talk about in in the chapter that you the the excerpt you just read comes from. I talk a lot about tango, which was sort of the first love that I had that brought me closer to improvisation. Right, not not just playing tango, but dancing tango. That that's and that's in your book too. Yeah, I I felt like too. I went to try to learn just some basic steps and theory behind it because if I felt like if I was going to write about it and write about improvisation in the context of tango I need to at least try. Yeah and that, and that also harkens back to your saying that, that the auditory cor cortex is very much connected to the motor cortex so you have your music and dance of course are incredibly related. Box partitas each movement is actually a dance form <laughs> you know it's, it's explicit. Absolutely and I think that's when you can sort of seed the mind to the body for that, those kind of brief ecstatic moments, like that really is, enables improvisation to happen, right? There are, I mean, and they've, they've measured this, like in, you know, the study that's done, that's been done on Gabriela Montero's brain too, and on the brains of improvising jazz performers. It's, it's been shown that during improvisation, the, what's called the brain's default mode network, which is this network of interconnectivity between all these different regions of the brain, right, that kind of modulate the, the self and the ego, who we are, and the kind of the strength of the ego resides in the strength of that interconnectivity. But during improvisation, that interconnectivity actually dims, like there's fun a functional decrease in activity there. And so that idea of kind of stepping out of the ego or the ego for a moment kind of disintegrating or, you know, the voice of self-criticism becoming less strong, then the body can step in with its muscle memory and say, I know how to do this. Yeah. So self-consciousness, self-consciousness kind of disappears. Yes. 
Yeah, let's shift gears one, one last time. I think this is probably all we have time for, but this is a huge topic. And that's in your memoir, you talk about your relationship to family members. And that's, you know, it was a really powerful section, and particularly your relationship with your mother apparently had an incredibly powerful influence on you, full of inspiration, love, and devotion, and you know, teaching you through example and encouragement the value of hard work and sacrifice, but not in the way the media often depicts Asian mothers as the Asian tiger mom. And, and I, I don't blame you for being, you know, annoyed, as I'm sure many Asians are, you know, of that stereotype. So it's, tell us more about your mom and how, what she gave to you. Yeah, well, my mom is a rock star. And I, I really appreciate this question because, you know, I got asked this question all the time as I was growing up and the, before I wrote the book. And then even after it came out, like, oh, what did, what was it like to grow up with a tiger mother who made who forced you to practice and you know had these dreams for you to become a professional violinist and people just assumed that and they assumed that because she was asian and because we played violin and so it was tremendously annoying and discouraging because we could never get out of that so the with with my mom right she she immigrated from Seoul to Arvada, Colorado when she was very very young and so she grew up here and she started she played the violin when she would like th it through her school orchestra and she loved it i think for her it was this contact with this immense beauty that i think did um you know in some moments lift her out of the difficulty of immigrant life in the 60s and the 70s like there, she was only she and her sister were the only asians at their school her father was also dying from tuberculosis at the time they're very poor so i think it's not people I think often assume that oh she had these aspirations for herself as violent as no she wanted she needed she knew she needed to go to law school to help support her family but it was this contact with beauty that I think had her when she had us like my all my siblings play music start us on our string instruments and because that became something that I wanted so much and that I grew to love right she like matched that with her own devotion to you know helping me get the opportunities that I wanted. Yeah, and, and it's clear that the motivation to become a professional violinist was largely from you. I mean, you're the one who was waking her up, <laughs> you know, in the, at 1 a.m. after she put your brother to sleep to listen to you and to listen to whether you got the passage right. And, and she sounds quite, quite selfless, you know, in, in her willingness to do that. Mm -hmm. That became a huge sort of part of our relationship when I was in high school was that I would practice till, you know, two or 3am in the morning. And there was this kind of feeling of, of not doom, but like, there was this really desperate sadness and aloneness as the rest of the house kind of shut down and the lights went off. And I was, I felt like I still had to be there practicing. And so I would wake her up and ask her if she would listen to me play or, you know, make sure I got it right. And it, there was always this, you know, the cover for it. it was like, oh, can I'm not sure like how this sounds. Can you like give me your opinion? But I really just didn't want to be alone. And she, her always, like no matter how tired she was, her willingness to say you don't have to be alone, that is one of the biggest examples that anybody has set for me just in terms of how, you know, how I would want to treat my own children, how I want to treat other people. It's just a reminder, you don't have to be by yourself. 
clearly one of the big connections between the two of you was was the music and her participation and support of that. Unlike your father, who I, I imagine maybe was jealous of that connection in some way and, and, and very disparaging of music making. And you describe him as a blue blood New Englander and who was utterly un, uninterested in classical music and disparaging of the career because it didn't bring the right kind of financial rewards. And you know, it, it it was such a such a sharp contrast between your two parents. Yeah, they were very different in how they approached it. I I think my the the disparagement that I you know felt or perceived from my father it wasn't. I don't think it was even because oh you know this career isn't going to make the right kind of money, but it was it was the cost of trying to pursue that career itself, right? The the at like the practice until 2 or 3 a.m., the, the resources that get dedicated to that financially and time, right? It, especially when you have multiple siblings doing it too, it really can hijack like a family's life like when, we're, when you're doing it at that level. So would you say he, he thought you were kind of enslaved to music in a way? Yeah, he did. I mean, and he and his siblings would say how tragic it was that we were, you know, were manipulated by our mom into being, and like, yeah, it, it, in in essence, that like sort of slaves to the music. But I, I think what was lacking there from from his part and from their part was an you know an understanding of when you do come from a culture that is not the majority culture that or the the privileged culture, the socially privileged one in this country, right? The amount of like the the stakes trying to be the best and trying to perform at the highest level, like that there there is a there was a desperation there that they didn't understand and that I felt they looked down on, but it, it comes from that. I, I do think that immigrant experience and there is a whole, you know, not that we necessarily have time to get into this, but there is a whole, the connection between Asians and classical music and Asians, the stereotype of Asians being the most excellent. And then that's also, you know, something that is, can be used against Asians in classical music as well. And in, in what way? Yeah. So, there because because classical music is something that so many asian american parents have their young children do and those kids often right not always but often become very very technically and and musically accomplished at the violin i mean i think right there is just this stereotype that asians are good at classical music like if a asian kid walked out on stage like you'd probably expect that they would play well they're not gonna just squeak out some random tune like there's just that expectation so there's a high level of excellence in music that is associated with asian performers but a lot of time that's been used against us because there's another stereotype that says oh we're, we're not really musical we can't really understand classical music i actually even had i had a, a musician from europe email me after the book came out and said, can you explain to me like something I've noticed in my career? Like Asians aren't, Asian musicians aren't really capable of understanding this music at a deep level. Like they can play it, you know, perfectly and there's superficial beauty, but their understanding of the music is missing. Uyo Ma, right, would go on when he, he, he mentioned in a magazine article that when he went on tour in Germany, he guess all, he would get asked all the time, what makes you think an Oriental like you can play Bach? So there's, I think the, 
there's a sense that, oh, you know, Asian musicians are technically good, but they can't really ever get it, right? Look, they're, they're just trying to, you know, fit in and become the best, but... No, I think that was that was an older stereotype, although clearly that stereotype has been overturned for probably at least 20 years. Yeah, I, you know, you would you would hope it has been. I do think it persists still. Yeah, maybe part of that is the kind of stereotype that Asians work so hard. You know, it's 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 all effort and practice and, you know, to a ridiculously umpteen level. Yeah. Of of drive. You know, whether it's the tiger mom driving or whether it's the child driving themselves, that it's it's the drive rather than the innate talent, which is, I think most musicians will say that, you know, innate talent is not, not nearly enough anyway. You know, it, it takes tremendous work to get to the top level of, of being a violinist, for instance. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, and it's and like if you compound that with just the immigrant experience well, like as well, like I had, like, there's a friend of my mom's who would always say we have to work twice as hard to be considered half as much and there that is something that really plays into the model minority stereotype too like you just you know you put to, in order to fit in and have opportunities you just put your head down and you work really hard but in some ways right putting in that amount of work right people sneer at it like there is that whole stereotype like oh it's ridiculous how much work they put in and that's a lot of what I got from my father and his family. And so in working to, you know, be the best at something that is, you know, a really important part of Western culture, like even that isn't going to guarantee that you belong because the fact that you're striving so hard brands you as the outsider that you are. So we only have a couple of minutes left. I'm wondering if you might tell us what your next project is going to be. I, I imagine it's a writing project. Yeah, it is coming slowly. I'm working on a project about Korean history and the relationship between specifically Korean modernity, like from basically the Japanese occupation onward. Right? There's a tremendous, there's been a tremendous transformation in the way the world sees Koreans and the way Koreans see themselves. I mean, now like with the prevalence of K-pop, like everyone loves Korean food. That was not something that was a part of the experience of being Korean, I think even maybe 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, my, I, my, my mom, when she was growing up, people would ask her, are you Chinese? And she'd say, no. Are you Japanese? No. Wouldn't even register, right? And it, 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 it was this, you know, a country that had been blasted to pieces by the World War II and the Korean War. And then there was this huge effort to, to modernize and industrialize and a tremendous amount of um, pain and reckoning has come with that, I think, for Koreans who are still on the peninsula, for Korean, for the Korean diaspora. So it's about that. Well, clearly you're launching beyond music now in your writing. Yeah, I, I feel I feel ready to elite to put that, I think, to to rest in terms of how I'm grappling with it analytically. Now I move on to something else. But it's now back in my life, just in terms of performing and playing for fun than it was when I was writing the book. So well, for fun and, and also for income. For fun and for income, yes. It's lucky when those two things can align. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, and it's clearly you, you've come up with another, an additional profession that's also you know a creative expression of self, 
and a, a, a learning about in a very deep way about other things. It's congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah, I I'm I feel lucky that even though it was it was hard to go through all of this with music, it it did lead me to to this other medium as well. So you never know what will happen. Well, Natalie Hodges, the writer and classical violinist whose memoir is entitled Uncommon Measure, A Journey Through Music, Performance, and the Science of Time. Thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Thank you so much for having me, Stuart. It's great to, great to be here. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.